Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. Today is our second episode, where we were joined by Terry List, a board director at Microsoft. Terry has had a prolific career. She was a CFO at three Fortune 500 companies, including Kraft Foods, Dick's Sporting Goods, and most recently Gap Inc., after working for P&G for almost 20 years and Deloitte for 10 years prior to that. Today, Terry's a member of the Alpha Fund and on the advisory board of Scholars of Finance. In my conversation with Terry, we covered some of the biggest lessons Terry learned throughout her career, including how to build confidence, investing in relationships, managing Machiavellian colleagues, diversity in finance, the role philanthropy plays in our economy, and her experience being on the board of one of the largest companies in the world. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let us know what you think on LinkedIn, Instagram, or shoot us an email at hello at scholarsoffinance.org. And don't forget to subscribe, leave us a review, and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues if you find it valuable. Today, we are so excited to have Terry List joining us. Terry, how are you today? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Um, where does this call find you right now? Where are you dialing in from? This call finds me in beautiful, generally, northern Michigan, where today it's a bit snowy. So um, not exactly what you love for spring, but still a beautiful place. And you've still got a smile on your face, a positive attitude, uh, Always. a bright light. Always. Always. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Terry, it is such a pleasure to have you here with us today on the Investing in Integrity podcast. Um, in the introduction to the episode, I've shared with our audience a little bit about your background, your incredibly, incredibly illustrious career. Um, so I want to just jump right in uh, to our episode today. For our audience, just if you can share a bit about your story and how you've gotten into the finance industry and found yourself where you are today, just to give us some some background. Sure, sure. Happy to. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, I didn't actually uh, have a plan to get into finance. And, you know, I've talked with some students more recently, and uh, I think a, a little bit they struggle with the same thing that I did many, many years ago, which was I didn't actually even know what finance meant in the context of a post-career because I came from a family that was uh, I grew up in a small town and my my parents were more entrepreneurial and so I hadn't had a lot of corporate experience and and so when I went off to college I knew generally that I wanted to be in business but I didn't have anything more specific than that in mind other than knowing that I probably didn't want to be the owner of my own business having grown up in a family of of that I just I knew I wanted something different. And so when I got to, to school, uh, I ended up majoring in accounting. And that turned out to be a really good path for me at the time, because back in those days, when you graduated with an undergrad in accounting, the general path was to go into public accounting. And the beauty of public accounting, uh, certainly at the time, and I think still even today, is that it does give you exposure to lots of different industries and lots of different environments. And 
provides really excellent training. And so during my public accounting days, um, I had the opportunity to work on really large clients like General Motors and Dow Chemical. And it really did tell me that I wanted to have that corporate environment. And it actually did let me see what finance meant in the context of a corporation. And over time, uh, as I went through my public accounting career, I had the opportunity to join Procter & Gamble. And that's where I really learned that I love love consumer businesses. And so I spent about 20 years at Procter um, in a variety of finance roles of of all shapes and sizes. And that's where I really um, developed uh, many, many of the skills and experiences that became quite useful as both a CFO and uh, over time as a a board member on, on some really terrific companies. And I remember from our previous conversations and even seeing some of your other interviews, at one point, sort of earlier in your career, you were approached by a, a, a boss, a manager of yours who said, hey, there's this leadership development program or this management program that I think you'd be a great fit for. Um, this is actually in an interview you did for the Microsoft board. Um, I would love to hear more about that experience, um, what that was like to first have you know, an advocate, a mentor come and say, hey, I believe in you and I think you have all this potential. Um, you had even shared in, the, in your interview, you weren't sure if, if you'd make it in that program. And here you are <laughs> decades later with three Fortune 500 CFO roles under your belt on the board of Microsoft, one of the largest companies in the world, on the advisory board of Scholars of Finance for whatever that's worth on the list of accolades today. <laughs> um, <laughs> tell us tell us about that experience. What was it like to not only be tapped like that, with to be told you have potential, but then to enter that program and, and explore it? Yeah, it's interesting because people will ask sometimes, are there certain junctures in your career that uh, made a dramatic difference in in your trajectory or path. And and the one you describe is absolutely one of them. Uh, I was working at Deloitte in a relatively small office in Michigan. It was a small office that had the benefit of large clients. So it was really uh, a great experience. And and I was doing quite well. And uh, because I've never been one to be particularly prescriptive on what my future holds to be a little more uh, open-minded about what's next. I I really hadn't spent a lot of time being specific about what I wanted to do, but I did know that I was really liking the environment I was in. I felt very comfortable. I was excelling. And so I was sort of the the analogy I use is, is a big fish in a small pond. And I was feeling really good about it. And so when this partner came to me and offered this prospect of this development program, he put it in the context of being an opportunity to compete with the best and the brightest in the national headquarters of the firm. And uh, no doubt, I found that terrifying. And he sensed that. And and uh, and he was surprised by it. And, and he... he challenged me a little bit. And, you know, as we talked about it, he, he said, you know, Terry, I'm, I'm getting the sense that maybe you don't have the confidence to go do this. And he said, and if, if you don't have that confidence in yourself, how do you expect me or others to have confidence in you? And that was really an important moment for me. Uh, and, and I went home and I talked with my husband about it and, uh, Ultimately, went in the next day 
partly because of what he told me about the confidence and partly because I'm just inherently competitive and I'm up for a challenge, whatever presented. And so I went in and I said, I'm all in. And uh, we moved to New York, which is where the the, head, the national office was at the time. And uh, off I went. And I started out as a small fish in a big pond and turned out that I competed fairly well and it, it worked out for me. And it, it taught me a lot of lessons about having courage and and, and uh, a willingness to go into the unknown with a sense of confidence that that I would be able to handle it. I can only imagine what it must have felt like to have someone say that to you very directly, very explicitly. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm curious to understand how you think you built or developed confidence through that program, like how did that whole experience help you develop confidence? And how do you think that people, whether earlier in their career, um, just beginning investing, someone who's a seasoned executive can develop that kind of confidence? It's an interesting question because, uh, you know, how you develop confidence, I guess inherently it comes from having success of some form in an area where you have less experience. And, and so you, it's a little bit of a willingness to take chances and, and learning that as you look into the unknown and it seems pretty scary, the reality is it probably isn't as scary as it seems. And I think you learn that you actually are maybe smarter, more capable than you feel at the time you're looking into the unknown. And, and generally speaking, I, I think people that are supporting your career really do have your best interests in mind and they have a broader set of experiences. And so as they're encouraging you off into the unknown, they're doing it because they have confidence in you and your ability to be successful. And so, you know, I think mm -hmm. my confidence came from being courageous enough to take the step and then working really, really hard, of course, to, to have the capability necessary to do the work um, and then having some degree of, of success and, and then being willing to say, okay, not everything is going to work out great. Not everything's going to be perfect. But I think what I learned more than anything is that I have the ability to adapt to situations and learn. And that continuous learning is, I think, a big part of what takes any small modicum of confidence and allows it to grow over time. It's an incredibly interesting, the notion that adaptability fuels and fosters confidence, and they're, they're mutually reinforcing, right? It's a sort of virtuous cycle of confidence begetting adaptability, which begets confidence and growth um, as well. I'm curious, when you look back on, over your career, in addition to this, this notion that being adaptable uh, breeds confidence and helps you meet any challenge that you have in front of you, what are some of the other big lessons that you think you've learned that carried you through your career and that you think were pivotal to your success? Oh, gosh, life is full of lessons, right? <laughs> and at my stage of life, you look back on them and, and so many of them uh, stand out good and bad. I was fortunate because in my career, both Deloitte and Procter & Gamble are such great training grounds. Their, their whole culture and business success is dependent upon their talent development. And so some of that's formal training 
which is terrific. Uh, but much of it is the on-the-job experience. And so effectively every day was a learning experience if if you were receptive to it. And I learned by watching others. I learned by, and by the way, watching others, both the good and the bad of, of, of those others um, in terms of managers. <laughs> you know, there's good managers and bad managers and you learn from both of them. I learned from by trial and error, you know, things that went well, things that that didn't go so well, uh, both myself and and others and, and as a business team. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, it comes back to that adaptability because we were able to adapt. I fortunately didn't have any massive business failures in the course of my career. Not that everything mm-hmm. went exactly as planned, not that every outcome was exactly as good as planned, but but because of that adaptability and that willingness to stay open to new data. Uh, There were no massive business failures along the way, but there were certainly people experiences that taught me probably some of my biggest lessons that I've taken to heart and, and have really influenced me as a, as a leader and as a manager and as a mentor and as a parent, frankly, um, over time. So uh, it's it's been a journey for sure, and and many many lessons. I think many people will tell you that you learn the most from your failures, uh, whether those are big or small. If you're willing to really dive in and and analyze objectively the cause for the failure. Right, right. It makes me think back to your your five C's leadership model. Uh, capability, confidence, compassion, choicefulness, and consistency. If uh, if it hasn't changed, they're, the, they're still the same five C's, I'd imagine. They're still <laughs> the same five C's. I've added a sixth one called communication, but we can talk about that another time. <laughs> pun intended, pun intended. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing. I, I really appreciate it. Um, you, you talking about learning from our experiences um, learning from our failures. I think it's so important. And one of the things in my own career, and I, I know so many people that I talk to express this in some way, shape, or form, is that one of the ways that we have to learn so much is, and maybe it relates to your sixth C, is in relationships, working with other people, right? All types of personalities. I have so many students and even friends of mine who are 10 years into their career that say, Ross, like, teach me, like, how do you build soft skills? How do you manage up and across? Um, How do you build influence, et cetera? And one thing that you had talked about in a recent interview that you did was, uh, and you even just mentioned now, right, that you have good managers, bad managers, you learn from what to do, what not to do, right, from success, from failure. Um, But there are great people you work with, right? There are people who are altruistic, who just want to do something good in the world, who have integrity, who are kind. You know, all of the people we're trying to attract with scholars of finance and support through scholars of finance, um, whether they're investors or students or whoever. But then on the flip side, unfortunately, there are people who succumb to self-interest, to greed, to temptation. They do the wrong thing. Um, there might even be people out there who are somewhat Machiavellian right? Who will, will tear you down to build themselves up. Um, I'm sure anyone listening can imagine one person in their life, whether they're, they're, it's at their work right now, or it's that, you know, it's that kid in second grade um, who wasn't the kindest. I wanted to ask you, 
Um, how do do you try to approach and how do you recommend others approach some of these more Machiavellian colleagues or even some of those more tense and difficult work dynamics when people maybe aren't acting in good faith or to serve a greater good or, or et cetera? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a, it's a bit of a hard one to answer. I think we all hope that the people that we are engaged with in whatever context are of the type you first described, the more altruistic, principled, high integrity people. Those are, I mean, that is where, why I have passion for scholars of finance is because I think the more people we have in business of that ilk, the better business will be and the better the world will be. So I think it's incredibly important. And, and I like to to think that I maintain my basic principle of assuming positive intent, because I do think most people are good people with good intentions. It doesn't mean they'll do everything the way that I think they should do it, but there's a big difference between doing things my way and doing things the right way. There's a lot more latitude in right, and that's really what's important, is that people are doing the right thing in the right way. But to your point, not everyone is of that ilk. And and you do run into those people. And, and the thing I would be crystal clear on is when you are when you run into somebody who's simply doing the wrong thing or doing the right thing in the wrong way, and there is a line where you're in wrong land, there is no tolerance for that. Whether you're in a corporate environment, whether you're in a, a different environment, that, that's, a, that's a place where you actually just have to escalate the issue in whatever means makes sense in that context. There could be whistleblowing programs in a corporate environment. I mean, those mm -hmm. th that that's, but, but what I think is the hardest are the ones where it's just the positive intent is not there. The Machiavellian nature, as you, as you described, where people are, are really focused on bringing others down to, en to enhance their, their position. And those are tough. And I think that, uh, you know, the way you can try to, minimize those situations, but is by really ensuring that you're working in an environment where the culture is a fit for your principles and integrity and understanding that culture and, and within that culture, developing a trusted network where you have people that you can test things and you can be aware of where the line minds might exist or where, where um, people, where there are people who maybe you shouldn't assume positive intent. Um, and, and then I think you just have to be smart about it, be a little bit intentional, be, you know, while you're assuming positive intent, don't forget to verify that you need to really just sometimes take the time to test the trust so that you don't find yourself surprised by somebody who actually doesn't have the positive intent you've assumed, but there's no easy answer. It's unfortunately probably mm -hmm. one that you learn from bad experience, um, unless you really do have somebody <laughs> guiding you along the way and warning you that you need to be cautious of certain people. Yeah, you, you talk about this notion of developing a, a trusted network that you can talk to and run situations by, get input on. Um, and in, in a keynote that you did for a Women in Leadership conference, um, you had mentioned the importance of investing in personal and professional relationships and that you've had some of your closest friends for 30 or 40 years now at this point. And I find that 
fast, fascinating. I can't wait to look back with some of my own friends in 20 years and um, look back at where we've where we've gone and what we've achieved. Hopefully, we've made a lot of impact and, and done as much good as you have, and I'm sure a lot of your friends have. And I'm curious if you can sort of describe the importance of relationships in your life and career, and also how you approach balancing kind of quality and quantity when it comes to networking and relationships. Yeah, good questions. You know, obviously, I, I've recently retired from um, uh, corporate positions and now just do um, boards and other other activities. And so, as I look back now, I realize that relationships are everything, and and uh, you know they matter more than anything else I did over the course of my career. And you know, during during that time, those relationships serve really a lot of purposes, right? Those relationships can be the career supporters, they can be the stress sharers, they can be the people who taught you along the way, they can be that sounding board that we talked about. But they also, more than anything, are the ones who made the experience fun. And in the course of your career, there are so many times where you're working long hours or dealing with tough situations and just having those relationships um, make it all tolerable, make it fun, make it memorable. Uh, and and I, so I think, I think it's really important. Procter & Gamble was a promote from within company, which meant that, that we didn't hire advanced levels. It meant the people you started with and you worked with were likely people you were going to cross paths with many times over the course of your career. And so that taught you the, the necessity of building trust-based relationships, of treating people with respect and with dignity, and because you never knew when you were going to cross paths with them again. So more than ever, the idea of never burning bridges was crucial in, in that kind of a corporate culture, which which I think is good advice always, is there's no need to burn a bridge. And to get to your question of quantity over quality, you know, I think you never know when a person you meet is going to be someone who could be of value um, for whatever reason, personally or professionally. And so, so I do keep myself very, very open to relationships, but, but you do have to decide which ones are you going to keep you know, and establish a, a cordial relationship with and keep the lines of communication open and which are you going to invest in really maybe a friendship or maybe just a really deep, strong, professional relationship. And so um, I try personally to use the same philosophies in my personal network as, as companies do in their talent network, and that is to go for diversity. I find that I, I like to be able to have relationships with people who come from a variety of backgrounds and experiences and professions and in and views um, because I like the idea of learning from them. I like the idea of them challenging me. I like what that brings to me as a person uh, in my broader thinking. And so um I, I try to create a pretty diverse network, um, uh, but of people that that I really respect and value and and enjoy spending time with. Frankly, I've never thought of that um, to to try to have diversity not only in your professional life but in your personal life. Um, and I'm even now just thinking about my own 
group of friends, the people that I do invest time and energy into. Fortunately, a pretty diverse group, but I'm already thinking there's probably, a f- I can name, think of a few people who I'm somewhat close with who have much more diverse perspectives um, that I probably should invest a lot more more time with and in. So thanks for that. Um, I've already got some action items for myself, and I'm, I'm sure that the folks listening are probably asking themselves too, like, who do they need to spend more time with? Um, I think short of shifting, you you talked about how a lot of your, your professional relationships can lead to opportunities. Um, and one of the opportunities in your career that you've talked uh, a lot about um, to me and to others is your role as a member of Microsoft's board of directors. Um, I would love to understand first and foremost, how and why you ended up joining the Microsoft board. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear the story of how that all came together and ultimately is resulted in you being on that board for several years now during a a really significant period of growth for the business. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm actually currently sitting on four boards of companies, um, and each one of those board positions came through a combination of recruiters, uh, because most board positions actually do go through a recruiter, even if the board may have a good network of contacts. But critical in actually uh, getting the opportunity was uh, people in my network who I had crossed paths with over time. And so in the Microsoft situation, I got, I was uh, the CFO at Kraft. I had been there not, not all that long. And I got a call from a recruiter who, who said, uh, and they always keep the company confidential. And they said, well, you know, I have, I have this board opportunity, Terry, and I had already been sitting on the Danaher board for a number of years and, and had, have, that has been such a great experience. And so I was receptive to a second board, although as a sitting CFO, you know, cognizant of, of capacity as well. And they said, well, I just, it's a really interesting opportunity. It's very unique. Would you like to talk about it? And I'm like, okay. Now you have to keep in mind at the time, so this would have been 2013, 2014. At the time, Microsoft um, was just a bit shrouded in controversy. They had just had a very public CEO succession where Satya Nadella had been named CEO after a very public search. Uh, There was a lot of, um, the performance had been very poor. There were a lot of questions about whether Microsoft would actually survive or whether they were going to be extinct because the Windows operating system just wasn't enough in, in this environment. And so when I took the board opportunity, because I really was intrigued by it, it was a little bit of, listen, this is, this is going to be a crucial juncture for the company. And I will either end up being a board member on a company that goes to glory or a company that goes to failure. <laughs> and and uh, what, a, what a unique place to be. And as it turns out, of course, uh, Microsoft has gone to, to great success in, in large part because of um, Satya's leadership and his focus on both uh, changing the culture of Microsoft and having strategic clarity and excellence in execution against that strategy. And so um, it's been a terrific experience, but but it turns out that back to the beginning of the story, um, the, the opportunity to be on that board was tied to a former Deloitte partner who I had worked with in that 
faded national office assignment that I was encouraged to take early in my career. And we had worked together and he was the chair of the audit committee of Microsoft. And so in the small world category, that became a part of, of the, the opportunity. So, so uh, that's why you, you never burn bridges. <laughs> Um, yeah, a powerful lesson. I can just, you think back to, you know, for anyone who's listening, who's in their twenties, thirties, you think back to that moment where you had that, that big meeting and you make that big decision and you have no idea what that's going to lead to. Um, there's no way you of course could have ever imagined that, yeah, joining this leadership program, um, and, and really investing in confidence, uh, you know, at the, the behest of this partner, um, would lead 20 years later to being on the board of one of the largest companies on earth, <laughs> right? So the fate you Serendipity. call it Serendipity. Uh, you, <laughs> serendipitous, being opportunistic, I, I see it. And I think you're a really, really strong, compelling case um, for people to, yeah, you know, of course, have a general sense of what you love and what you enjoy, um, the work you like to do, challenges that you want to try to engage in, but to be a little bit opportunistic, to be open. Um, you've talked about being open to opportunities. You've talked about being open to people, relationships. Um, so definitely, I think, a, an important key takeaway. And going kind of back to the this this notion of the, the board of Microsoft, I'm, and it at the time being either like a, a failure case or a success case. I mean, yet you mentioned it's been a success case. Would love to hear more about your experience on the board. What's it like being on the board of Microsoft? What are your board meetings like? Um, what have you learned? Would love to just get a window into that experience. Yeah, so keep in mind, you know, the role of the board is to represent the shareholders of the company by providing the governance um, and oversight of management. And so technically the board is the CEO's boss. Uh, obviously that's, that's um, you know, the, the day-to-day running of the company is the responsibility of management. So the focus of the board is really to define the purpose and strategies of the company, to, to oversee the value system of the company, to, to um monitor the capital allocation decisions, the talent development, the things that are necessary to ensure that the company can deliver on its objectives to shareholders. And so, you know, we're set up in committees to carry out some of these duties. There's a nomination and governance committee. There's a compensation committee. There's the audit committee. Um, in some cases, there might be a technology committee or a regulatory committee, depends on the company. But that, that helps get some of the the necessary governance work taken care of. And so the board conversations are very much focused on, you know, a little bit of, of current business and how, how that's progressing against the, the goals and objectives for the year, but, but primarily to be dealing with tougher strategic issues. And, and the, the agenda for the board over the course of the year lays out certain responsibilities that we execute according to the calendar. But always we are spending a great deal of time talking about the competitive landscape, what that means for the strategic priorities that have been established, what changes need to be made, what capital allocation decisions need to change or need to be executed. So it's fascinating, obviously, as a board member to come into a company like Microsoft, where the technology space is evolving so quickly. Microsoft is such a leader in the space. The, the competitive environment is so challenging. The growth expectations so high. And just the sheer complexity 
of a company of that size. So, so we, we very much are reliant as a board on the integrity and uh, um, transparency of management in how we execute our duties as, as board members. And so I think it's so important to have good, collaborative, transparent uh, relationships between the board and management. And, and that's what allows um, the board to be most effective in its role. Right. Um, oftentimes, we at Scholars of Finance will talk about the fact that, you know, when we're talking to our students, they think, well, a CEO runs the company. Like, I want to be a CEO one day. Then I make the decisions. Um, and many people, 18, 19, 20, don't realize that the board is the CEO's boss representing the shareholders and investors. So we oftentimes talk about at Scholars of Finance, the importance of leadership, integrity, character, because ultimately as future investors, they will be on boards or they might launch their own funds and have boards, right? That they need to work with. Um, these, our students, our future, our, even our professional network, our future board members, our future investors. And so a question I think our audience would really love your, your perspective on being on the board of Microsoft would, what well, is first, how can a board member best serve the management? Like what, what distinguishes a good from a great board kind of top down? And then how can management best manage up to the board? Yeah, they are, they are interesting questions and ones that are often debated, you know, to your point, I think, you know, everyone has, everyone has a boss, the CEO has a boss, which is the board, the board has a boss, which are the shareholders. And so, so I think, um, you know, what makes a great board is one that is comprised of a diversity, that word again, a diversity of skills and experiences and backgrounds that can provide um, good advice to the company. And so, so, you know, you think about the industry that the company is operating in, you think about the geographic span, you think about the size and complexity, and you try to bring board members that can bring either similar or complementary experiences uh, to the table to serve as um, advice and counsel to the CEO who and, and the CEO's leadership team in, in who know the business the best. And so the idea is to have that candid dialogue where the, the management can look to the board for advice and guidance and the board can constructively challenge uh, management's thinking to make sure that you're triangulating to the very best answers for shareholders. And so there's some, you know, there's some clear governance responsibilities that reside with the board. So you want to have people who are knowledgeable in uh, board governance on the board, but then you also want a collective of other experiences that can really help drive the business and the value creation objectives of, of the company. Right. And when you sort of go into a, into a conversation with, let's say Satya, um, talk to us about more on the relationship level on the interpersonal dynamics in a one-to-one -one perspective, um, what's it like to be a great board member to a CEO and build that personal relationship? Um, and 
you know, with the various boards you've been on, what has sort of typified the CEO that you think does a great job managing the relationship with you as a board member? I think this depends a lot based on the nature of the company and the experience set of the board member. And so, um, you know, in a, in a Microsoft situation where um, the leadership is so experienced in the nature of the business, um, the needs from the board are very different than, say, one of the startup companies. I'm, I sit on the board of Double Verify and Oscar Health. And, you know, these are companies who are just going public. And particularly for me as a CFO, the role is very different in that case because they actually are looking for help um, building their own capacity to operate effectively as a public company. So where you are in terms of size and complexity, as well as maturity as a public company, I think affects how that relationship is developed. And so, you know, I think every board member uh, feels that they have, or they should feel that they have a very open relationship with CEO and management and that, that they can reach out to them uh, if they have questions about the company, or that the management can reach out to to the board member with with questions to get a perspective outside, maybe their industry or outside their um, their particular um, network. And so I think those those dialogues are are super important, and having that knowledge and again that trust based relationship uh, make a huge difference. I think it's absolutely incredible that in your role as a board member, you try to create that relationship where management can just reach out to you one-on-one, -on -one, can call you, can call you, right? Can can reach out personally, and there is that trust. Um, I know for myself as a young CEO starting something very early, um, I've had several members of my own board who have done that. Where I feel like, gosh, the role of a CEO can be so lonely. Um, I've, I've heard many executives say. Fortune 500 CEOs to startup CEOs um, and having board members that you can reach out to and say, hey, actually, I have this problem. I don't want to burden my team with it yet uh, until we have a plan, a strategy, next steps. Um, so can we just workshop this without having to worry even about you know the, the perspective, the perception of that board member, knowing that they have confidence in you and will help you problem solve, having that, that trusted advocate, mentor, coach, if you will, I think is so valuable. And one thing I, that that sort of train of thought leads me to is uh, back to your point on diversity is actually diversity on boards and just women actually in finance in the industry more broadly. Um, there was this 2019 analysis done by McKinsey, which found that companies in the top quartile for gender diversity on executive teams were 25% more likely to have above average profitability than companies in the bottom quartile. And um, I think I oftentimes talk about my mother, Rosemary. Um, her name is Rosemary. She's out in Minneapolis. I've talked to you about Rosemary as well. Um, she was one of the first female vice presidents at Smith Barney. This is back in the early 80s. So I oftentimes talk about her and I oftentimes talk about you as like a pioneer, right? Like shattering the glass ceiling when the glass was a foot thick, right? <laughs> um, and I want to ask if you could explain the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion in business broadly, but on the boards, but just in finance as well. I, I, I don't actually think of myself as a pioneer, but I appreciate that. <laughs> 
perspective, Ross. Um, you know, I, I think the answer here is so obvious that that I don't even need to belabor it. The the value of diversity is simply the ability to have the perspectives around the table that allow you to make the best decisions and and develop the best action plans. And if you don't have diversity of experience and background and culture and and principles, you you're simply not having the depth of and richness of conversation that gets you to the best answers. And so um, I, I think it's as simple as that. You, you need those views at the table. They reflect your customers. Uh, they reflect your stakeholders. And, and they should be at the table. Completely, completely agree. Um, and one question that we, we oftentimes wrestle with, and we're always exploring and trying to get better and better at is how to help women succeed in finance. Um, wonder, women are an underrepresented group in the industry. Um, this is one of the reasons we're so excited to have you on our advisory board, right? So you're a role model and inspiration to the women in our organization. You come and speak, you share your time and energy and show them the height, the heights of achievement they can too reach when sometimes it feels like they're in an environment where the deck is stacked against them, right? Where the cards aren't necessarily playing out in their favor from the beginning. And so I want to ask if there are any sort of skills or abilities that you found women actually disproportionately bring to the table. Um, what are some of the unique strengths that women bring in the workplace that and that they can capitalize on, they can bring to bear um, to, to drive forward their success in finance? Yeah, some of what they bring is what everyone brings, right? They, they bring uh, the smarts and the experience and the thoughtfulness that uh, makes a good uh contributor to a, to a team and over time, a good leader. I think uniquely though, women, um, uh, these are a, a bit generalizations that are never entirely fair, but, but, but the, the theory is that women bring a more collaborative approach. They bring because of a, a detriment, which is often referred to as the imposter syndrome or lack of confidence. They bring a humility that often makes them better listeners. And therefore, as better listeners, they they can actually internalize and ruminate and come up with better solutions. Um, they tend to, again, all generalizations, they tend to maybe not be as aggressive so they can serve as a bit of a modulator in, in plans to make sure that there's, there's really thoughtful execution uh, to ensure that they're not being overextended. So, uh, again, you know, you hesitate to say what can you women uniquely bring. I think, I think um, men can bring some of these things as well, just as women can bring very male-like attributes. But, but I think in general, having women at the table uh, is is good. And it's it. The, I think the biggest challenge is for women to be at the table and heard. And that last part has been a challenge for decades. And it's one, you know, we've heard about even in the last couple of years, a lot of the mansplaining that goes on even today, decades and decades after we reached the point where women and men were entering the business um, profession at a ratio of 50-50. And yet, 
we still haven't tackled that one. So it, there's work that remains for sure. Yeah, and we're excited to be doing the work together um, with you and with other members of Scholars of Finance. I, I wanted to ask more tactically, I uh, appreciate you sharing some of the unique capabilities you think women bring. I completely agree. Um, all the guys that I work with might be upset hearing me say this, but I, I enjoy working with women on the team a lot more generally for a lot of the reasons <laughs> that you've that you've described. <laughs> um and my girlfriend happens to be my best friend, I think, because she, at least for me, far exceeds me in all of the categories you've just shared, even though <laughs> I don't set a very high bar on anything, um, anything for that matter. I suspect but, that's not true, Russ. <laughs> <laughs> well, all that to say, um, really uh, making this practical, applicable, um, what can women do um, to, to increase their odds of success, right, to advance um, in this world where you're saying they're still not being heard like they need to be. And conversely, um, share with all the guys listening, um, what can we do to help women advance and succeed as well? So we can finally achieve this, this state of, of equity um, that we're all longing for. Yeah, far be it for me to be able to, in, in a few sentences, solve a problem that we've been dealing with for a very long time. But, but you know, I do, I, I'll revert back to my 5C model of leadership. And I think, um, you know, if you, if you think about capability, confidence, compassion, consistency, these are all choicefulness. These are all attributes that I think women and men, if they both embrace, along with a very important skill called communication, um, uh, I, I think that is what women need to do. And the reason I go back to that is because confidence is one that is a more male attribute that I think women need to feel comfortable embracing for themselves because it's not that women don't think they're smart. They just have a hesitancy necessarily to uh, demonstrate maybe the courage to test it. And so I think women need to be cognizant of that and therefore intentional about how they address it. Conversely, compassion is one of those more traditional female attributes, which is a really important element of making business good that maybe men need to be more thoughtful about how they both express it themselves, but also how they value it in others. And so you know, there are lots and lots of books and articles and research about what men can do to help women. But I think uh, the simplest piece is that men need to recognize that in some cases, uh, styles of work are different for men and for women, just as they are different for some cultures than others, and recognize the how is less important than the ability to get things done. And men in particular, because they are the majority, need to be willing to look outside their normal comfort zone of people who look just like them and be willing to reach down and give women a chance, give them the coaching, give them the mentoring, give them the opportunity uh, that maybe isn't their instinctive choice because it's easier to go to somebody who looks just like them, but they need to be taking that step every day to be thoughtful about, are they building a diverse pipeline? Um, 
in their business team and in their organization. Yeah, um, they, I do think while there's a lot, a lot to say on the topic, and um, you sort of open by saying that it's far from you to to solve a problem in a few sentences. I do think that what you just shared is is helpful. Um, it's got me thinking, and I would imagine for a lot of our listeners, the women listening and the men listening, um, they probably are thinking clearly and saliently about some of the ways they can drive things forward. I mean. There was a Harvard business, some Harvard Business School research that showed that among senior roles in VC and private equity, women held just nine percent and six percent of those positions, respectively. Um, there was a Corn Ferry analysis, I believe, that showed of the one thousand largest companies in the U.S., only eight percent of them have female CFOs. Um, so we have a long way to go. There's a lot of work ahead of us. I'm excited to, to be on the journey with you um, and just want to thank you for the insights there uh, for our listeners. Um, I know we're, we're, we've only got a few minutes left for our interview. So one thing I wanted to, to shift into is giving back, um, the importance of service, of giving back. In a keynote you had done, you had mentioned the importance of philanthropy in your life, whether it be through time or money. Um, and I was wondering if you could just share a little bit about why you think philanthropy, why giving back is so important. You know, some of it, life goes in cycles, right? And there are times in life where um, time is at a premium. And there are times in life where um, you have more of that to give. But irrespective of that, I think we all have a responsibility to give back, give back to either places where we have benefited from or places where we see a real need. And there's no shortage of places where there are real needs at this point spanning any any variety of topics. And, you know, I, I, I've always felt that to those whom much is given, much is expected. And I think that's a good thing. It can be challenging sometimes. It can feel like a burden sometimes. But I, particularly at this stage of my life, feel such gratitude for all of the good things that I have, um, whether that be my family, my health, my friends, my career. I mean, just so much to be grateful for and therefore such a strong sense of the need to give back in a more meaningful way, in a way that can hopefully uniquely leverage some of the skills and experiences I've had as a consequence of my career. Uh, so, so that's where I personally focus, but I think it's about where is, where are your passions and how do you match your passions with your capabilities to have impact? And I think the feeling you get from that is better than just about anything. I love it. This, this Venn diagram of passion, skills, resources uh, to maximize the impact that you're, you have. Um, we oftentimes use a sort of a similar framework with our team to help them find the right role, mm -hmm. um, what project they're going to work on. Even in hiring, we use that framework, right? If, if the mission of Scholars of Finance isn't somewhere in the passion uh, circle, we're like, hey, this, this might not be the right fit. Um, <laughs> you, you have to want to change the world you want to have to change the world through finance, or you have to want to change the world through finance. Um, and that segues into what will be my last question. You're on our advisory board here at Scholars of Finance. You've decided that you're you decided to make a very very generous contribution to the organization. Um, you've been coaching me as a as a startup CEO, which has been incredibly helpful. 
Um, why have you chosen to give back to Scholars of Finance? Why us? Of all, I'm sure all of the emails and and inbounds that you have to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> well, back to our earlier conversation. As you as you know, our connection started through a friend of a friend, sort of networking, and you know, someone introduced me to you, and you know, who cannot, particularly with my background, how could you not? believe in the power of investing in the next generation of leaders? And how could you not believe in the importance of that generation of leaders who have such opportunity to change the world in so many ways to want to instill in them the very fundamental principles that are foundational to scholars of of finance. And so, you know, developing that next generation of finance leaders who have integrity and ethics and who can ensure that we're not only doing good business, but we're doing it in a good way is, is, uh, is where my passion is. And so I am thrilled to be able to contribute in any way. Thoroughly enjoyed the opportunity to get to know you, Ross, and to participate in some of the activities of Scholars from Finance. And, and I, I really believe uh, you're making a big difference to the future business. Thanks, Terry. Um, I hope that you are right. I, I, we hope to. Um, we're working hard, and it's it's thanks to you and all of our listeners and everyone in our growing community that we're making some impact. Um, hopefully, not just now, but for forever, for the long term, um, as as we collectively mobilize capital to the right places, to its highest and most productive uses, um, through high integrity, ethical leadership, like you mentioned. Um, I guess with that, uh, we're at time. Terry, so I want to thank you. I know you're busy. I want to thank you so much for your, our time today. The conversation's been incredibly insightful. Um, cannot wait to hopefully have you on again soon. Um, and thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Ross. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. Tomorrow.